Hey, we, uh, we do something called Advent Conspiracy around here. This is our 14th year doing that. And I just wanted to highlight one of the projects that we're partnering with this year. It's Living Waters International. Um, a lot of people around the world do not have access to clean drinking water. And so a third of the offering received for Advent Conspiracy this year is going to go toward Living Water International. If you're new and wondering what in the world is Advent Conspiracy, there's really four tenets to it. It's basically a way to try to recapture Christmas as a way to once again change the world. That when God gave us his greatest gift, he gave relationally, he came to us He gave extravagantly, he gave his one and only son, and everything about the Christmas story actually resonates with, identifies with the poorest of the poor. Somehow that story has turned into, in a lot of ways, the high holy day of consumerism and materialism, and often we buy into it. And so Advent Conspiracy is, is really four tenets. Worship fully, that we want to enter into that story of God coming to us. Uh, and worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. So basically, rather than buying a gift for X amount of dollars to fulfill some social obligation, we want to give of ourselves to the people that we love. And then maybe take some of the money that we would have spent on meaningless or frivolous Christmas gifts and pool it together in order to give to the least of these around the world. So over the last 13 years, we've raised almost $620,000 and given it all away. This year, we are, we're, we're partnering with Living Water International, we're partnering with two orphan ministries, and we're also going to collect money in order to bless people in our community that are in need with heating bills, electric bills, medical bills, things like that. We're going to take it in, give it back to you in order to meet the needs of tangible, real people. And so that's what we're doing this Christmas season. You can give to that uh, through the offering envelope, through um, marking it, if you do the text to give, uh, or on Christmas Eve, we'll be collecting a large offering and all of that money will go toward that. The other things, if you don't designate it, will just go toward our regular fund. So that's the Advent Conspiracy. I love, I love it. I, I, if you come back, I would love to tell you more about it as we explore the other projects as well. But would you pray with me? God, thank you now for this opportunity to open your word and to not only read it, but to be shaped by it. God, help us to see Jesus as he is that we might look to him not only as our savior, but also our example this morning. God, would you shape and form us as a people in a way that reflects Jesus to this surrounding world? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak this morning, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, I gotta be honest with you, I am so excited to just talk about Jesus this morning. Don't get me wrong, I've loved our Thread Sermon series and going through some of the more obscure prophetic books in the Old Testament and connecting them to Jesus, learning about what they teach us about God's character and God's plan in in human history, but also, man, I'm just glad to open up the New Testament and not be in like Nahum or Zephaniah this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to talk about Jesus explicitly rather than just connecting the dots and getting to him. And what we'll see about Jesus is who he is shapes who we are as his people. 
This is a short Advent sermon series called People of the Incarnation. The incarnation is simply the theological word that we use to explain what happens at Christmas time. It's the reality that God, who made this world, entered into our world as a man. He became a human being in order to save us. And of all the things that that should do in us, it should humble us and cause us to be humble people. Now, I bet when you think about Christmas and the season of Advent, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not humility. You think of words like joy and peace and hope and love, the the traditional themes that we celebrate at Advent season. Or maybe you think about generosity as God has given us his best, so we also are generous people. But the takeaway that I want you to leave with today is this. Christmas should move us toward humility. Christmas should move us toward humility. Let me show you why from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. As you turn there in your Bibles, it'll also be here on the screen. There's sanctuary Bibles scattered throughout if you need one of those. Let me just catch you up on the context of the letter from Paul to the Philippians. Paul is writing this letter to a church he started in the city of Philippi, a church that has faithfully partnered with him in ministry for many, many years. He's writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome, which is amazing when you read the letter, because the the huge theme that we see all throughout is one of joy, and joy that overflows, and to think that a guy from prison is writing this letter, the context just makes it explode in our minds, doesn't it? It shows that our circumstances don't determine our attitude, at the very least. But he writes it from Rome in order to encourage them in their ongoing partnership and encourage them to live godly, joy-filled lives as they wait for Jesus to return. Now, this is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I know that's like saying I have a favorite kid. There's just a lot of different favorite books, but this is one of them. But the heart of Philippians, I think, is found in chapter 2, where Paul reflects on Jesus and sees him not just as a savior for sin. He is that but as an example that you and I are to follow as we pattern our lives. Simply put, who Jesus is shapes who we are as his people. Let me read. Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Now, as I was wrestling with trying to prepare a sermon on this, I confided in my wife, this is such an amazing passage, but the sermon's not all that great. And so she said, well, you could just open it up and read it multiple times, and we'd at least get the text. (laughs) And so if nothing else happens, I'm going to read it one more time, but from a different translation, so that if you go home, you're like, at least you read it. At least we got God's word in our hearts. So let me read it from the New Living Translation. And if you enjoy this, you can thank Liz later on, okay? (laughs) Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Yes. Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, And gave him the name above all other names and under the earth. And every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of you guys are thinking, Kyle, you can just say amen now and we can go home early. It's all right. Now, how many of you would describe the church, the people of God, like this? The church is a people who agree wholeheartedly with one another. They love big having been loved by Jesus. They are united in a common cause that trumps their minor disagreements. They are not characterized by selfish ambition, nor are they conceited, but in humility they treat other people as more important than themselves. Freely laying down their own rights and considering other people's needs before they consider their own preferences. Some of you guys are like, Pastor Kyle, I wish... That's what I first thought of when I thought of the church. But in my experience, the people of God have seemed like anything but that. The church sometimes seems divided beyond repair, characterized by constant infighting with one another. And while individual Christians often show radical love to each other, it seems that the church as a whole is more interested in other stuff, in itself, in getting bigger, being successful, whatever that means. Her agenda is often driven by selfish ambitions of leaders rather than the heart of Jesus to serve those most in need. Often people in the church are hyper-focused on small issues and divide when people don't fall lockstep in line with what they think. 
And don't even get me started on putting other people's needs and desires ahead of their own preferences. We like our worship styles, our preaching styles, our political tastes, our approach on how to best deal with a pandemic. And if you don't fall in line with my preferences, I'm out. I'll just find a group of people that do. Let that sit a while. Paul writes to the church a a beautiful if-then statement in the first two verses. And the things in verse 1, if these things are true, it's meant to be rhetorical. It's meant to be obvious. Of course those things are true. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and all Christians are like, there is so much encouragement in Christ. He loved us. He pursued us. He forgave us. He saved us. He promises to be with us. He teaches us the way to truly live. That sounds like some pretty good encouragement to me. If there's any encouragement in Christ, of course there is. If there is any comfort from love, there is such comfort in knowing that we are loved by him. That in spite of everything that we have done and will do, we are loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he came. That's why he paid the ultimate price. Some of you, even in light of that, still doubt the reality that you are Loved. If there is any participation in the Spirit, of course there is. For those who are Christians, the Holy Spirit has awakened us. He leads us and He guides us throughout the day. He convicts us of sin. He unites us together with people that are somewhat crazy. We participate in the work of the Spirit when we follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If there is any participation in the Spirit, there is, of course there is. If there is any affection and sympathy, yes, we have new desires and new sympathies that we never had before. That's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And if these things are true, which of course they are, then he says, do this, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is he saying? If these things are true, then be united in love and in purpose with one another. Get along. Work together. Have the same mission that I have given to you. Love radically. Do it together. He goes on. He said, if that's what you're supposed to do, then this is what you're not supposed to do. Don't be characterized by selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition is seeking to make a name for yourself, seeking your own glory, your own prestige, building your brand, highlighting who you are, letting everybody know a carefully curated version of yourself so that they look at your life and say, oh, I wish I was like that. I wish I had that. See, ambition isn't actually the enemy, but selfish ambition is. Seeking not the glory of God and the good of his people, but seeking your own glory and your own name that everybody would be captivated by you. Selfish ambition, conceit is its ugly twin. It's the negative side. And it's a lot like the sin of envy. It despises those who are better than us at something. 
It moves beyond just wanting recognition for what we do into looking down on somebody else when they get the recognition that we think we deserved. But instead of being characterized by selfish ambition or conceit, which if we're honest, sometimes characterizes our life, we're to be characterized by putting other people's interests ahead of our own, others' desires ahead of our own, laying down our preferences, our desires, and thinking from another person's point of view is the default of our mind. Brothers and sisters, could it be that those of us who call Jesus Savior have forgotten that he is also our example to follow? Now, don't hear me wrongly in that. Jesus must be our Savior, and he must first be our Savior. If you only treat Jesus as an example to follow, you are going to end your day in discouragement and probably despair, because you won't measure up. He won't do it. And it will lead you either into wallowing in despair or puffed up with pride. Jesus must be more than our example to follow, because we can't. Just try to live like him, and you'll mess up. Now, there's a reason that he had to come and enter into humanity as a man to live obediently as a man and then bear the sin of men on the cross. And the reason is because we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. We needed a substitute, someone to live the life that we should have lived but didn't. Someone to bear the just penalty for our sin that would utterly crush us. Someone to rise, defeating sin and death in our place so that by faith in his name we might be saved. Jesus must be our savior. But embracing him as our savior without also seeing him as an example on how to truly live leaves us impoverished and copying the world in all of its stupidity. Paul says that we should look at him as an example on how to truly live. Verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The NIV, the New International Version, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In thinking about Jesus' example, when was the last time you considered not just his actions, but also his attitude? His attitude, his mindset, what drove him. We are told to have the same attitude as Jesus, the same mindset that drove him. Well, what was that attitude? He tells us, verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, something to grasp, something to exploit for his own opportunity. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is talking about Jesus' life from birth to death, and then we'll see even to resurrection. Jesus entered into our brokenness, giving up his divine privileges. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is a card-carrying member of the Trinity, but he didn't exploit his God cred when he came. On the contrary, we're told that he takes on the humble posture of a slave, a servant, one with no rights to exploit or to leverage or to use at all, 
born as a human being. Now let that one hit you for a moment. God was born. The one who had existed for eternity past, the one who spoke rivers and trees and lakes and stars and seas and planets into existence was born. Not only does he condescend to take on our flesh, but he starts at the very beginning. As a baby, he is completely dependent upon his earthly mother to eat, to change his diapers, to relearn everything. And not only is he born, he is born into poverty. Instead of a palace nursery, his first bed is an animal's feeding trough. His first years were lived as a political refugee, fleeing for his life, living in Egypt of all places. When we think about the humility of Christ at Christmas time, it's astounding, isn't it? It's life shaping. Now, if that alone doesn't humble you, look at what he did as he was an adult. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus, the sinless one, embraced the shame of rejection. He was humiliated and tortured on a Roman cross, the worst death that you could imagine. He was labeled a criminal by those who made a mockery of God's law. They condemned the only innocent one to death. The only real question for us is why? Why did he do it? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. What was this joy? It wasn't that he was exalted. He already had that. He didn't need to come to earth for that. I mean, he had thousands of angels worshiping him at all times. What didn't he have that he needed when he came? You and me, forgiven, restored, redeemed, renewed. Jesus did this because God loves you. He loves you. He doesn't merely tolerate you. He loves you. And so the greater joy that was before him, that he scorned the shame of the cross for, was, was you, me. That we might be saved and forgiven and renewed and restored. But through this, God exalted him, didn't he? We see a pattern here in scriptures that those who make themselves low, God raises up. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father's. Just two, two observations here. First, in God's economy, the way up is down. Say that again, it's really pithy, you should be able to remember it. In God's economy, the way to be exalted, the way up, is down. Christ is exalted precisely because he was willing to empty himself in obedience, humble himself. See, the path to exaltation in God's economy, in God's kingdom, is a willingness to embrace humiliation. A willingness to be made low. 
Christ is exalted precisely because he made himself low. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of this, and the New Testament is filled with examples and teaching about this reality. Paul merely calls us to the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus himself told us, the greatest among you must become servants. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter and James, when they write letters to the church later in their life, they remind us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And now here, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Jesus, who even though he was God, didn't exploit that, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant and dying. Therefore, God exalted him. He lifted him up. If you want to be great in God's eyes, then get low. Be a servant. Pour out your life. Embrace humiliation. Delight in not getting your way. Put the needs of others above yourself. True greatness in the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, which will one day cover the earth as the water covers the sea, means discovering the life-altering reality that Jesus demonstrates the way up is down. The second observation, every knee will bow to King Jesus, will it not? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, everywhere, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The only, the, all the different ways that you can look at reality, everyone, everything will bow. You can either do it joyfully now, in humility respond to his incredible invitation and love to be saved and forgiven, or one day you will be compelled to. You will not have a choice, because he is Lord of all. Whether you acknowledge it or not, he will be exalted. And that day will either be the day of your greatest joy, or you will grit your teeth, but you will kneel. You will bow. The end is not in doubt. Jesus will win. He will overcome. The small victories and defeats in our little moment of history, they matter, but the end is not in doubt. The victory is won. The lamb will overcome. Jesus will be exalted and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So let me ask you something. Does the story of Christmas humble you? Does the example of Jesus drive you to embrace a life of humility? What does that look like? Glad you asked. Paul writes it. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together in one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You're, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Let me make this really practical for us. And you know what? You can probably think of some other examples when you gather together in this coming season as a family, and it's going really well for one of your relatives, the path of humility is genuine happiness for them. Ask about their lives. Listen because you're actually interested and you care. Don't make it all about you and what you've done this year. Put the interests of others ahead of your own. 
If you're married, my guess is from time to time, you start keeping score of all the serving you're doing. You begin to make a mental tally of all the things that you've done in the last day or maybe the last week. And then simultaneously look at the tally marks that your spouse or significant other has done, at least that you've seen, and you begin to wonder, I'm not sure they're holding up their end of the bargain. I'm not sure they're serving as much as I'm serving. What would it look like in that moment to throw out the score sheet in your mind and embrace the attitude of Jesus? who had every right to be served, but didn't. In that moment, remind yourself of how much Jesus served you and embrace the task of servanthood. What if you have a tendency to count your sense of self-worth by the number of followers you have on social media, the way that you present your life in a carefully curated way so as to arise the envy of other people? Where your first moment, whenever you're experiencing something beautiful or good or fun, is to capture it so that you can broadcast it for the world to see and think, man, they got a good life. What would it look like to break out of that pattern of thinking and just live? And just be? And just enjoy, regardless of who sees it? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Or when you're shopping this season, keep your eyes open for the retail employees that look ragged. The ones who are serving everybody else, but often being treated like garbage in turn. It's amazing how often people's disdain is seen by how they treat people they think are beneath them. Go out of your way and thank them. Encourage them for their work. Tell them something that you genuinely appreciate about how they're serving. Or maybe at school, if you see someone who consistently sits alone, befriend them. Even if being associated with them might knock down your social status a rung or two, consider the attitude of Jesus toward you. Oh yeah, when Jesus came, he hung out with the uncool kids, like you and me. What would it look like for you to show genuine interest in them? Jesus was a friend to many who lost him much social clout. Or next time you're at Citigroup and you're tempted to monopolize the time talking about yourself, be genuinely more interested in someone else than in how you're doing. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others That doesn't mean that you can't share what's going on. That's a great place for you to do that. But but when was the last time you, you went into an environment like that more concerned with what was going on in the lives of other people than what was going on in your life? When you have an opportunity to serve and it comes up at church, say yes. Don't just assume someone else will do it. Join in the joy of serving and being part of something. When an opportunity to serve someone at work comes up, Say yes and do it and see how you feel. You guys, the church at Philippi, by all accounts, was a pretty healthy church. They didn't cause Paul constant heartache and trouble. 
They weren't known for their constant bickering with one another or embracing false doctrine. In fact, on the opposite, they, continually, they consistently partnered with Paul in the ongoing work of bringing the gospel to people who had never heard it before. But even this church needed to be reminded of how Jesus was an example of humility that should characterize their lives as well. When most people think of the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, their first thought is not usually, those people are humble. They put the needs of other people ahead of their own. But what if it was? You want to talk about power. You want to talk about a countercultural way of doing life that invites the world in that is weird, but it is compelling. What if that was what characterized us? See, in our world, you don't have to look very far to find self-promoters. Almost every day, we are reminded of leaders who use their authority to be served rather than to serve like Jesus. Those who gain high positions often exploit the privileges that are found there. It's just seen as normal. You don't have to go very far to see people expressing their opinions and demanding their own point of view that everybody fall in line. But what if in contrast to this, the church of Jesus embraced the attitude of their Savior? What if we were known by our agreeableness, our unity, our willingness to serve and the default posture of our hearts to put the needs and desires of others ahead of our own. Guys, I'm guessing that would make quite the impact, wouldn't it? Not in the sense that everybody in the world would embrace us. That Guys, that's never going to happen. People always find ways of opposing God and opposing his people. But maybe we could stop giving them so much ammunition. Here's my point this morning. When we think about Christmas, it should humble us. When we consider being people of the incarnation and we look at the humility of our Savior, that ought to humble us. Let Christmas humble you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it speaks right to the heart. God, I confess that when it comes to this, I got a long ways to go. The default posture of my heart is often one of selfishness and a desire to be served. God, I often feel personally offended when people don't agree with me or when other people's preferences clash with my own. Lord, would you help me? Would you help us to embrace the humility of Christmas? the humility of our Savior. And God, would you exalt those who humble themselves like you exalted Christ. May we make much of him. And God, may we reflect him to our watching world. In his name we pray, amen.